Words come from the wordless. And words go to the wordless. And in meditation, there are times and types of practice where we engage with language and all of its constructing and meaning processes. And there are times and practices where we dwell at or in the wordless. And we know that words can be binding, the source of tangles. And we know that words can be liberating. Like the words spoken by a wise teacher, like say the Buddha or Jesus. How we engage language and the languaging mind will make a big difference if it's in done, if it practices intentional, intelligent, informed by wisdom. then words can be our ally. On the other hand, if we engage language in meditation the same way we engage it most of the time in our everyday lives, then the flavor of meditation moves towards the flavor of everyday life and the whole constructing process just keeps going. What does it mean that words come from the wordless? There is no stick in my hand. There's simply form holding form. But to say stick allows us to refer to it and so on. But it's just rupa form. How much more so is that the case if we say love? Is there a love? Or anger? Or perhaps 
a different kind of challenge. We say a word like talking, running. Immediately, of course, the meaning lands because we're so well-trained, so smart. And we begin to overlook the fact that there's no such thing as running. There's no actual running. Running designates this thing that we do when we want to go fast with our feet. Very simple what I'm saying. The word is not the thing. The map is not the territory. Even the carefully expressed desire, emotion, thought has its origins in the wordless. because words are not foundational in the sense of this human experience. Words point to things. And we can see this very clearly when we engage language to express how we feel or what we've experienced. So if I want to tell you, I have so much respect for you, something like this. Where does such an expression begin? It doesn't begin with the word you or the word respect. It begins with a felt sense that we can put language around like high regard, a positive sense of things, honor. But the actual experience of respect, what is that? You know, we can pause, we can notice there's this feeling, and there's thoughts associated with the feeling. But at some point, the naming of respect will make it possible to express this feeling doesn't begin as words, right? Somehow we put together this conglomerate of notions and bodily sensations, perhaps images, personal history, and we come up with a word like respect. 
and then the learned process of actually articulating that, verbally creating that in sound, which is a quite a complex process, happens also more or less automatically. And can be spoken. How much I respect you. But even that doesn't speak to the totality of words coming from the wordless. Because speech is a physical act. Speech takes effort, it takes breath, it takes muscle. And there's no such thing as a physical act without the engagement in, you might say, the directedness of the mind. No mind, no physical act. So let's look at the mind. There's this sense, this emotion, this feeling tone that arises that we're calling, I respect you. That's what, where we're headed. That's what's going to come out. But we're looking behind it. There's this feeling, the high regard and so on. But there's more than that. There's an urge to speak it. It's not just that I respect you. It's that I'm actually going to end up saying it to you. Why? Some sort of motivation. Perhaps uh, it's, a, it's kindness and care. I want you to feel good knowing that I respect you. Or maybe it's motivated politically and it's a conniving kind of thing. Or maybe the feeling of respect is just so great that if I don't tell you I feel incomplete, and there's this energy behind it. I've got to say this. I really want you to know I respect you. And that energy, if it's not followed through with, if not resolved in some way, if I don't speak it, then I feel perhaps unsatisfied or tense or something like that because I've held down this energy. So the movement to speech, as well as what is spoken, begins in the wordless. Begins with this, in this case, this emotional tone that would be spoken. Much easier to see this with something like anger. Anger. where someone has done something to disturb you, to bother you, to upset you. And there's a whole, you know, uh, a lot of things going on in the mind, in the body, and the body gets all agitated, and, and we call this thing anger, and I have to tell you, I'm angry at you. 
So not only is anger itself a word that's placed onto a very, very complex experience, but the actual movement to speak also began wordlessly, without language, as an emotion. So words come from the wordless. And they go to the wordless. What does that mean? So I say to you, I respect you. And we know where it comes from. It comes from this feeling and sort of notions and vi images maybe and what have you. And there's this language forming process of actually speaking it physically. The movement of the airwaves, the touching of the eardrum, the movement up your auditory nerve to the brain. And then there's a process by which the word, and this is where it gets very mysterious, is recognized. If it's a foreign language and you don't understand it, it's just a sound. But that understanding it is the connection between the word and the wordless, that understanding. So that word respect touches the language area of the brain, which then connects to all of the constructed history you have for the word respect. And that blossoms through the mind, touching all the associated neural networks and so on, to what it means. And then there's, of course, all of the emotion, all the hormones of emotion and so on. And maybe it feels good to be respected and what has happened is that this wordless impulse moving forward through words to you, received as language, and moving back to the wordless of your experience. So words go to the wordless. But it's not even that simple on the receiving end, either. Because, for one thing, the words were delivered by an actual voice. And the voice has this physiology behind it. The voice has loudness that's determined by the tension at my diaphragm and the tension at my you know, vocal folds, vocal cords, that will change the pitch of the voice. And it has its origins through the physical motions of the tongue and so on, which reveal a lot about even what country I'm from and so on, if I'm a native speaker or what have you. And the movement of the breath carries 
those nuances that are musical expressions, wordless expressions of what either I'm trying to convey or I may not even be trying, but it's conveyed anyway. Like when someone's lying and you can tell. They don't want to convey through their music, but they just don't have the control that a professional would. So this, I respect you. I respect you. And that music carries something. I respect you. Yeah, I respect you. Right? And you have spent a lifetime unknowingly learning to interpret that music. And so there's actually a separate processing channel that happens in parallel with the word language processing channel, which is musical. It's the same pathways in the brain that interpret music. And up comes all of the emotional valence that is your interpretation of how I sound. Everything from trustworthy or not to, um, you know, the uh, inflection that would indicate um, how, let's say, how strongly I feel this or something like that. I respect you. And so on. And that music now is already wordless. It's actually carrying the, the, the word content as well. But the musical part of the voice is just music. It's just sound, changing sound. And with that changing sound, you're perceiving something like, it's like x-ray vision of me. Because my background and my emotions and so on are imprinted on this voice now as I speak, even as I speak now. So this conditioned imprinting from the speaker and your conditioned reception of that imprinting, decoding of it, creates in you the way you receive what I said. I might be saying, you know, I love you. And you might be hearing through your interpretive processes You know, he wants to have sex with me. Or you might be hearing, um, he thinks I'm wonderful. And I may have meant neither of those. I may have meant, gee, you're such a great meditator. I love you, you know. Sorry for the misunderstanding. Right? So the, the words and the wordless there really mixing things up a little bit. But even when it's the most straightforward thing one could say, like, 
I'd like to uh, have some gluten-free bread at breakfast. And that begins wordlessly as well. Both the emotion that would speak it and the fact that there's no ultimate gluten-free bread. It's just a language pointing to a construct. And the urge to say it, no language there. And it resolved the problem. I said it because I felt an urge to say it, which I actually didn't feel, but that's another story because I'm giving a talk, a whole other construct. So we're doing this all the time and we're so good at it. We're so good at these more or less off-the-cuff translations between the wordless and the words and then receiving and making the translation from the words back into the wordless as the listener. We're so good at it that we can do it thoughtlessly. It's overlearned, like walking. And of course the punchline is, so we do it thoughtlessly. We can and we do. Meditation calls us to a more refined capacity that we also possess but haven't developed. Which to engage, we have to look deeper at this words and the wordless and frame our investigation in terms of understanding the power of language, why it matters to meditate without othering language, without just treating it as a disturbance or something like this, a distraction, a crude, worthless, harmful intruder. That's the kind of the attitude towards language in meditation. But again, remember, there's ways of engaging language with meditation where it's not. There's ways of language coming up where it's definitely like that. So let's be a little more clever. Let's look more closely. Let's not fall into meditation cliches. The A key piece in understanding the power of language is to understand that language transmission depends upon perception, or in Pali, sanya, 
And by linking it to perception, which is the object-forming function of the mind, that's how I'm using that word, object-forming and feature-forming, like brown is a perception or white, but so is woman, so is bell, so is window, and so on, right? So it's, it's going from pure sensate vibration to stuff, to features. By tying together, by coming to understand, not forging the link, but just understanding the link, that this languaging process is sanya, perception, opens up the vast teachings on perception, on sanya, that were offered by the Buddha in his investigation of the mind. And the two pieces that I'd like to highlight are the role of sanya in mental proliferation so we can understand why language is kept out of meditation sort of, it's a very ham-handed move. It's like, this is a problem out with language. Very crude, but there's a good reason at least to, um, you know, behind it, good intention. So this sanya papancha, papancha is the uh, tumbling forward of one thought after another that leads to you know, all the rumination and wandering and all the things that the mind so happily and deludedly does when most of us are theoretically sitting in mindful meditation or just almost all day, almost all the time, right? Let's be honest, right? And you can actually test this out for yourself sometime, maybe now, I don't know. Try proliferating without language. See what happens. You could try proliferating, for example, with music, but that's what you'll do when you do that is a language of music, a language of sound, typically. And you can do it with images, but then what you're doing is there's perception of the images and then the kind of tumbling forward of this perception leading to that perception and so on. Language is somewhat more obvious, but it's all the same process of this perception enabling the proliferation. Okay, so we do that in meditation and we do it most of the time, the ruminating mind, most of the time. And it's the getting caught up in that that keeps this 
whole organism taut, tense, self-absorbed in what's being fabricated, and basically deluded, spinning worlds and living in the worlds we're spinning, and the actualities around us just get further and further away. Maybe you yourself have done this or you know some or you know someone who's like this, called lost in thought or sort of not present. Well, where are they? Mostly Sanya Papancha, you know, perception proliferating. And language is a key culprit. So understanding the power of language to sustain ignorance and to create this fog of delusion where we're out of touch with the world is a very big step. It's a very useful thing. Does it mean that all language should be banned from meditation? We'll talk about that in a minute. And another piece to highlight, great richness of understanding sanya perception, is that sanya is one of the khandas or one of the so-called aggregates or the, um, there's this uh, concept that the Buddha put together that said, well, there's these clinging that happens, this grasping that happens around um, is the organism experiences the world. And I'm going to tell you about the, what it is that's clinging and what we're clinging to. And he named five things. One is material form, Rupa. Another is Vedana, pleasant and unpleasant sensations, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Sanya, perceptions. And then this vast category of fabrications, constructions like mind states and personality, character, memory, all of that is vast. And consciousness that which seems to know or be experiencing or that assembles all of this stuff into a sense of being conscious of it, not mindful, just that there is seeing, there is hearing, there is sensing with the body and so on. There's consciousness there. So any of these five things, and it's an interesting setup that the Buddha has there. If you investigate it, which I've done for many, many years, many decades in fact, There's a body of teachings that employs this schema that I just mentioned to you, these aggregates, that is profound. And it's all pointing towards liberation because without the clinging to these things, there's the non-manifestive 
state of consciousness, lustrous on all sides. I mean, you know, there's freedom in the most profound way that I would know how to talk about such a thing. So coming back to the, this perception process, here we are going through the world, naming it, naming everything we can get our little grubby naming hands on. This is a this, this is a that, you are this, you are that, I've categorized you and everything about you, and I've made you safe, I get it, you I got, now you I got to work, okay, I got you. That's, that's how we go through the world. I got me. Right? The central perception of self. My personality, my me, my problems. Every one of those problems is a sanya and a sankara. It's a construction, a formation. It's kind of built up. But you build it up, it's no good to you unless you can grab it and torture yourself with it. How do you grab it and torture yourself with it? Sanya! Language! Right? It's like, that's the value, the great value, for example, for those psychologists among you of the DSM-5, you know? It's like, wow, they got a whole big fat book of naming what is toxic and upset in the being, which is basically fluid process. But once it's named, hey, I got it. It's mine. Or I can put it on you. It's you. And I begin to map the world, create the world like this, create me like this. And those sanyas, don't kid yourself. Together with Sankara, you know, all the whole forming process, constantly rebuilding, reforming the world. I am what? I am a man? What does that mean? But I got a whole thing around it, or I am a meditation teacher. <laughs> but also, I am a victim. I am gay. I am married. I am straight. I am a nature lover. I am in the machinist union. I am a Knicks fan or, you know, I mean, there's all these, all these handles used by, I mean, made possible by perception that then is the basis of the Sankaras, this, like the whole, the whole process of building the world moment by moment. Sankara, constructing, fabricating, conjuring this world like this. Boom. And language is this handle into all these different pieces of self-inflation and self-torture and proliferation and clinging. The clinging aggregates. Do you see the imprisonment? And do you see, do you, can you sense the power of it? I mean, this is, this is like the functioning of, of the body mind, the brain mind, 
functioning like this and being a prisoner of sanya, of perception. So now I want to touch the power of language. First, I can easily name the power for ill. So I'm not going to go into that real far because lots of people can talk about that. I don't want to take a lot of time with it. But let's go back to this, uh, you know, movement of the word love. I love you. I respect you. One of these words. So I've got this whole background, my decades and decades of life, and this word love means this. The way my mom used the word, or the way I was taught in elementary school, or the novels I read, or my experiences of heartbreak when I was younger, or whatever all the Rumi and Hafiz that I've read, whatever makes love for you. And I say, I love you, and that's what I mean. It comes from that. Well, poor soul, you haven't read Hafiz or Rumi. You didn't have all my great experiences as a teenager. How are you going to understand what I'm talking about? But you hear the word love, and you think you do. So that's an obvious source of Not, not connecting when we think we are. And it's so obvious, let's not dwell on it. We got the problem with the proliferation. You understand that. We don't need to dwell there. And when proliferation in particular goes towards hatred, ill will, when proliferation goes to proliferate greed, when proliferation you know, becomes that, not just an imprisonment, but an actual part of the motivation of harm, this is really serious. This is Hitler and Eichmann and any number of historical figures, but it's also you and me, when it's you and me. When it's not you and me, it's not. But the potential of language that makes all of that uh, power available for ill actually is available for good and I'm going to make a related special category of good for liberation. When I say good in a general sense, of course, you know, I used to, with my children, I have three grown sons, every night, put them to bed, one at a time, usually, and do loving-kindness practice with them. And, you know, lie there and be with them and kind of move with them through 
metta for this person and that person for themselves and their teachers or their friends or whatever. It's quite lovely. To this day, it's, I know it's installed in their hearts. Language. Right? From this body-mind system conveyed, landing in their body-mind system, and they're building all those neural networks of meaning, because I started even before they could talk, and something's there. Something happened that has a, a lifelong effect, positive effect. Or the good simply of offering words of kindness. You know, how much I care about you and perhaps, you know, want your um, ease and happiness. And I can tell you that. And you can hear that and you can receive it. And you can not just be moved by it, but you can actually be changed by it. You know, love changes us. Care, being cared about, changes us. And so you can be reached if it has starts in the wordless love and makes it all the way through the words to the wordless love inside. If it stops somewhere along the way, if you can't hear that, right, it's, it's something that could be worked with or mended in some way. But if it moves all the way through, it can be very, very good stuff, very useful, deeply beneficial. And likewise, words get stuff done. I mean, bad stuff, obviously, but good stuff too. All that stuff, all those emails, all those Skype calls, all those diplomats at the UN, all those soldiers giving orders, all those ministers tending their flocks, you know, it goes every direction. But let's talk about, because I'm going to let that go. You can understand that. Let's talk about what we mean by language contributing to the liberative process. And, you know, we can begin with an example. And the example is just this talk. All I've been doing is sitting here talking. And to the extent that you understand what I'm saying and are curious and awake, your mind is probably tracing what I'm saying somewhere into experience as far as it touches you, moves you to do so. Right? So I say something about Sonia and color and windows and objects. You say, oh yeah, Sonia. There's a little key piece there. You say, Sonia Papancha. Say, oh, Papancha, yeah, yeah, proliferation. With the, yeah, I get that. And you begin to understand your own mind, and now, hmm, maybe I can be a little more skillful with this mind. That's an example, simple example. But what about this one? So I'm going to ask you a question, and you can just wordlessly answer it for yourself. What are you aware of right now?
And if you were able to notice what you were aware of, just move your hand. Let me, let me see if that made sense, if you actually were. Okay. So you heard the words, what are you aware of right now? And what happened? You practiced mindfulness. Sati happened. All I did was say, what are you aware of? But in that moment, I was a support for the arising of what is this now? Right? Kind of a conscious turning towards the fact of being aware of the world. And when we can engage at this level skillfully, with each other, pointing each other towards loving-kindness, towards generosity, towards patience, then that type of goodness begins to emerge. But what about when the mindfulness, the sati, is being named and reflected between us. So you're also saying to me, well, I notice that I'm aware of sitting here. What are you aware of, Gregory? Like, oh, wow. You know, and I can notice, and I notice that I'm aware. I notice that there's mindfulness happening. And I look at my friend that I'm meditating with, and I speak it. But I'm not just speaking it, I'm embodying it. And so are you. And now the sati is kind of resonating in this between. Now that resonating is wordless, right? That resonating is just happening at the level of sensation and maybe other perceptions are feeding it, but it doesn't need language but the language has either primed the pump or actually keeps it going because maybe we sit in silence for a minute, you know, resonating in mindfulness, and then I notice something else. It's like, wow. It's like the room is getting brighter as I'm noticing this sati. And then you notice, yeah, right? So now language has come in again, pointed to something that has nothing directly to do with language just to the quality of experience when the mind is waking up. And that's like a transmission of a wisdom experience. See what I'm saying? So there's actually a, a, a brightening of the mind that can be affected and resonated. And when you and I attend together, let's say, to this question of don't know mind, of not knowing here and now what the next thing is. I challenge you to try and go do that by yourself as intensively and steadily without gaps as long as you did in your practice with another person. Good luck. I don't think it's going to happen. Because in this, the mind stays engaged and interested and alive 
And not only is the don't know mind being investigated, you've got to look down another layer. By engaging each other with language and staying present with this topic, which happens to be don't know mind, it could be the topic of clinging itself or love or something, but we stay with it. What's happening? We're beginning to actually develop samadhi. Right? It's the foundation for genuine samadhi. The mind is settling to a point, and at some point, if it settles enough, we will move beneath language. Because when the mind becomes deeply still, the applied and sustained thought, or the thinking and the pondering, in Pali, Vitaka, Vichara, that is the source of language, ceases. So beyond the second jhana, there's no, no words. But there is in the first jhana, for those of you who are into jhana, which is a deeply, deeply absorbed state. Quality of mind, quality of concentration, very astute and it includes the thinking mind. The vast teachings, and I will refer us specifically to those teachings found in the discourses of the Buddha, because those are the ones that most move me and that I associate most readily with wisdom. Those teachings were offered Without a doubt, there was a transmission process happening just by the presence of someone like the Buddha speaking, or Sariputta, but they were carried down to us as words. And if you go to those sources, or whatever sources of wisdom you consider profound and legitimate, the legitimacy itself comes from that there's something being carried there. And in meditation practice, and the, shall we say, the liberative life, if we tap into this vast trove of teachings that are offered by language, and that say, you know, these things, let's say, about noticing the clinging and perception and proliferation, or that notice that say something about cultivating certain qualities and how to do that. How can you name tranquility? 
and thereby recognize it and cultivate it, for example. It's words, but when you touch it, the spectrum of practices just opens up way beyond anything that anyone is out there teaching. And they're constructed, those practices, specifically to free the heart. These are not philosophies. These are not fairy tales. They're teachings to free the heart, to free the mind. And the language of words is a conveyor. So I'll close by saying that when the speaking and the listening in meditation are informed and challenged by this sense of the power of language to imprison and to liberate. And when your speaking and listening practice is informed by the fact of the subtlety with which we proliferate and how deep we have to go down in our mindfulness and concentration to get beneath the habits of language, then speaking and listening can rightfully come into something that we would call meditation. And this is possible. And very worthwhile. I recommend it highly.